Hello, ladies and gentlemen, geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. This is day five of National Podcast Post Month. We are going back to the Nostalgia Trip archives here. This is for any music fans who might be listening. Myself and Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock talk about the formation of the Monkees in the 1960s. They were a successful TV show slash music group inspired by the success of the Beatles. It's basically what happened. And they had success off and on basically for the next 30 years. But I think a lot of people remember the TV show the most because it was in syndication for many years. That's where I had heard of them growing up. But we're going to go into the archives here because at the time of this recording, only Davy Jones had passed. Davy Jones passed away, I think, in 2012, I want to say. So at the time of this recording, three of them were still alive. Uh, Mickey Dolenz is the only one that is still with us as of November of 2023. But I think you'll like this show. This is for the music fans among us. We're now going to jump into Geekville Radio's nostalgia trip, talking about the formation of the Monkees. Geekville Radio. Here we come, walk down the street. We get funniest, less fun, everyone we meet. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, fellow geeks and geekettes, another edition of Geekville Radio's Nostalgia Trip, where we kind of kick back, don't really talk anything topical, we go into our memories, things of the past, and we've been doing some shows that we grew up with and have also been re-releasing older episodes of Geekville Radio dealing with older stuff. And this was a subject, as you folks might be able to tell from the intro, uh, this is a musical-themed episode of The Nostalgia Trip, and we're going to talk about some of our favorite uh, music back when we were kids and, and TV that we grew up with. We're going to talk the two seasons of The Monkees, and as well as their music and kind of the effect on pop culture. And once again, I don't have to do it alone, joining me as usual... From a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. So, Train, uh, how would you like to open up our talk here on the Monkees? This is this is your your uh, your call. Not that I don't like the Monkees. <laughs> it's it's um, just that you know if you listen to our podcast that me and Seth and we do several together, we tend to agree on a lot of things, but we do have very different backgrounds. Not just be growing up in different parts of the country and. I think monkeys, musically speaking, is probably a little bit more down your, you know, that's more your wheelhouse than it is mine. But I respect mm-hmm. what they did. And I have a, a good enough working knowledge that I, when you brought it up, I'm sure I'll talk about it. Plus, we have both stated, and, and I, I still stand by this, the nostalgia trips, the lesser geek known Hall of Fame, classic wrestling memories, stuff that deals with history. I think we both really enjoy, have said we enjoy doing them because researching them for us to be able to talk about them is fun, too. The stuff you guys don't get to hear, but the hours we spend online and at the library and listening and watching old shows, that's fun. That I don't know. So you said you've enjoyed that as well, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I learned some stuff in the past few weeks preparing for this that I really didn't know about. So, of course, I got a uh, pretty decent length of uh, bullet point notes here, and uh, I guess we'll just uh, jump right into it and... I guess it's a pretty fair assumption, if people are listening to this, they have uh, a measure of knowledge uh, of the Monkees, but this episode is devoted to the Monkees, which started in the 1960s as a TV show. It was kind of a pop sensation, uh, and it was really in response to Beatlemania. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Each of the cast were given a role, and they acted that out on camera. And the members, which we'll go into more detail shortly, but a lot of actors and musicians auditioned, and the ones that were cast were Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones, Peter Tork, and Michael Nesmith. And they started with the TV sitcom with the music, and then the music was also released into record stores like normal, and they were played on the radio. So, you know, it seems like it was kind of a multimedia, I don't know if front is the word, maybe the word, not mm-hmm. the word I'm talking about, but I mean, 
they were a manufactured band. You know, they were not sure. a band that formed organically. Uh, they were right. assembled by producers and such. There are people that kind of talk negatively about that, I guess. And uh, right. I think we may have varying opinions on this, but I was curious what you thought of that. Um, I probably fall more in the camp of, well, they were fabricated, but I also am smart enough to see that they, the band and their success on the charts will outlive the run of the television show, uh, mm-hmm. first off. Uh, second off, I think that to discount a group because they were assembled uh, as opposed to you know the more traditional let's you know guys and gals playing together and then they go and they you know they do the hard nut, scrabble work work and then they get you know heard and signed that's tried and true but there have been a lot of examples of both commercially and critically successful musical acts other than the monkeys that were created ones that come to mind right away is one of the most beloved vocal groups of all time the jackson five now, mm-hmm. granted, it wasn't a, a record producer; it was the it was their father, but they still were pretty much manufactured, weren't they? Yeah. Um, I think the Osmonds go into that category for the same reason. You know, they were they were they assembled by their parents, but they still were manufactured. Um, uh, they're they're not critical successes, but um, both New Kids on the Block and and New Edition, the earlier, and then even the later boy bands like 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 you know In Sync, those were all mm-hmm. very successful vocal acts. They were pretty much put together by a studio. Yeah. The only one of those type of groups that was the organic was Boys to Men. You know, and and I understand they probably would of all those type of groups probably would have the most critical uh, acclaim, um, but. It's not new. Don't don't hold it against the monkeys, in my opinion, because they were. Um, and, and also, I like I said, when you throw in the fact that they had success musically, whether they're, they're your cup of tea or not, they had it well past the, the, the run of the TV show, which tells me there was something there. You know, um, right. being the hard rock, you know, metal guy that I am, uh, gods in that world are is always going to be Kiss. They're one of the forefathers, right? Well, well, Kiss was never. They're not. They're not musically as as talented as Queen or Van Halen or mm-hmm. you know Guns N' Roses or Metallica. Doesn't make them any less important. And and would we still be talking about Kiss today? And would they be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if the music wasn't good? No, we wouldn't. And right. I think the same thing could be applied to the Monkees. You know, if they mm-hmm. were really that, if they were really that big a joke. Why do you still hear their music? Why are we doing a show on them? They're still relevant. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that was the take you thought I was going to take, but that is my stand on on that. Yeah, yeah. We're we're more or less along the same route. I was going to say, you know, do you really think the Spice Girls were four or five gals that all decided to become right. pop artists, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, and as far as your, your the Beatlemania reaction, my research told me, I mean, it was directly tied to the success of the, not the, not the song and the, and the album, but the movie Hard Day's Night by, mm-hmm. you know, and that makes sense. You have a very successful rock act who does this movie that's essentially a, a, a two hour long old MTV video for their music. And it's very commercially successful. We all know how Hollywood is. They're going to notice that and go, ah, you know, <laughs> so yeah, we can make money it, with this. Yeah, they made money with this. And I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you look at it. That's always the way Hollywood's been, you know, the movie and the television industry. If it works once, we're going to do five million variations and copies on it until it just quits making money. Right. I mean, uh, our, our sister podcast, Examining the Dead, came out of the fact that the zombie craze got huge, and we focused just on zombies at first. But it's kind of run its course now, so we've expanded it to be all horror. Same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Walking Dead was a hit, so all of a sudden – there was what five gazillion zombie movies and and television shows that came out there for a few years, right? I mean, okay, yeah. <laughs> I guess all I could really add is that there were people that called them kind of the Millie Vanilli of the '60s, and I just think that's not accurate. I think rather they didn't than hire them, they hired four good looking guys, but they didn't hire no models to lip sync. Come on, people, right? Really? Right. Yeah, they, they were more <laughs> like the Spinal Tap of the '60s. You know, they, right. you know, created to be this counter of the, of the Beatles, but they did their own singing. And later on, as we'll show, they did their own music as well. They wrote their stuff. They played their own instruments. Like, come mm-hmm. on. Yeah. yeah. But the, the first two albums really did uh, to kind of 
set the stage for what things were. I think it's really where the most controversy was from. It is true. The first two albums, they did not do much of their own playing of the instruments, uh, with a possible exception, I think, of Peter Tork. Uh, all of the music was played by professional studio musicians. And I know some Ardent uh, musical historians may know the name of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, they actually mm-hmm. did uh, a lot, if not almost all, of the, the actual music playing on the first two albums, The Monkees and, and More of the Monkees. And that really was done for two reasons. One, they could make the TV show at the same time. And as Mickey Dolenz would go on record, even to this day, saying he always looked to it as an acting gig. He really didn't look to it as being a band. But they they could film the show and release the music at the same time. And then also, the music would have that sound like they were a band that had been together for years. Now, obviously, right. any... Any musician or group that just meant that year, they're not going to have the synchronous, if that's the right word to use. They're not going to be as precise as a band that's been playing together five or six years. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. The term you'll hear in music all the time in bands, were you tight? Were you in the pocket? Those are the two terms you hear the most often. And you're mm-hmm. not even been in a band, but you've been around music enough. I'm sure you've heard those terms, haven't you? Yes, tight or yes, in absolutely. the pocket. That's, you know, I mean, it's it's um, case in point, to go back to my heavy metal love, when uh, Jason Newstead had left Metallica, and of course he was a replacement for the original bass player, Cliff Burton, who tragically died in a bus wreck. Mm-hmm. They they when they did their documentary, some kind of monster was during the time when they were trying to replace that guy, trying to replace Jason Newstead, and they showed several very famous bass players auditioning. And of course, they finally went, they 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 wound up going with, and he currently is with the band today is Robert Trujillo, who was uh, played with Ozzy, he played with Suicidal Tendencies, Infectious Grooves, he's a really good bass player. But that was the actual words you heard. On film, after his, you know, he's left the room after his audition. You hear the three guys in the band go, "Man, that was so tight. He was in the pocket the whole time." Mm-hmm. That's what you're looking for if you're those seasoned musicians that, that you're talking about. Another thing that I found out in my research to add on to that, it also because of the way they filmed the show is another reason they did that. They gave, these guys were literally. It, they would go to work all day like a normal person would clock in at their job. And the, the, the first half of the day, they were on set videotaping, filming the show. And then at night, they were in this, the sound studio side doing the vocals to match the songs that were going to be on the albums and were going to be on that week's show. I mean, that's that's a real job. That's not what we think of as the glamour of, of a Hollywood actor or actress, is it? You know, I mean, you're putting in probably, what, 10, 12-hour days every day, six days a week? That's Pretty rigorous. That's pretty rigorous. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, and the guys who didn't know their instruments, at the same time, they were learning those as well. So, yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. I had to add that, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. This is a job, okay? It's not not as glamorous as you think. But, yeah, those first two albums, The Monkees and More of the Monkees, that's really where the early hits came from, and that's really where most of the writing was done by professional songwriters. I mean, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart did a lot of them. Well, Last Train to Clarksville, Monkey's Theme, Neil Diamond. Yes, that Neil Diamond uh, wrote uh, I'm a Believer, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You. John Stewart, who uh, was also one of the Kingston Trio for a while, I believe. Uh, he wrote Daydream Believer. Carol King and Jerry Coffin did Pleasant Valley Sunday. Which makes sense because Carol King, of course, was part of the Wrecking Crew. She was their bass player, so mm-hmm. right, legend, legend, legendary musician. I step away from the Monkees for a second. I'm sure you'll bat me on this. Uh, oh, yeah. If you if you don't know Carol King and you're a fan of music from oh 1963 to about 1985, you need to look her up. Google her. She's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a reason. Mm-hmm. She's massive contributor to to what we know as modern music, and she was a studio player. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I'd heard stories of the band going out to tour and the music was essentially piped in, which is probably where people were making the uh, Millie Vanilli comparisons. But then they would be talking to their fans 
And the fans would say, oh, yeah, we got your new album. And they're like, oh, yeah, our album? It's like, no, no, your second album. And they're like, we don't have a second album. And that's when they found out that More of the Monkeys was released a couple months later. <laughs> later. So they had this album they didn't even know was out in stores out yet. Stores. Of course they didn't. They're too busy recording from, from 6 in the morning till noon and then taking a break and going back and singing for another eight hours. How are they supposed to know? <laughs> right. We just talked about their work schedule. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll get to their more uh, original works in a bit but i think we'll we'll talk about uh, the members themselves i'll i'll start out here and uh, i chose for my first member to talk about peter tork because i think he really is kind of a unsung hero uh, in a way because he was and still is i shouldn't say was you know he's still with us but uh, he's so profoundly talented uh, but he was born Peter Thorkelson, and that's why they gave him the stage name of Tork. But he was born in February 1942 in Washington, D.C. So that does, by calendar, make him the oldest of the four. His father was a college professor. Peter himself started playing piano at the age of nine, could play other instruments. You know, he could play banjo, guitar, all those others. And growing up in that upper northeast area, he did a lot of work in New York in, in music, and he met a guy named Stephen Stills, who you may actually recognize from, of course, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Buffalo Springfield. But Stephen Stills was the guy that auditioned for this TV show about a band, and the feedback was that he was talented but wasn't photogenic enough. You know, they obviously, for something for TV, they want to look for a guy who's good looking. So Stephen Stills actually recommended the Peter try out for this. And I think as uh, Peter would say, uh, the rest is a hysterectomy, but um, <laughs> you know, he always, Peter, I mean, played the straight man in skits. You know, he very rarely said the funny things, you know, as a straight man, of course, how comedy works, the straight man doesn't tell the joke. The straight man is the guy that sets up the joke for the funny guy to say something. And that's right. usually the role that Peter played. And he was kind of the normal one or might have been the one that wound up being the butt of the joke. But the funny thing is I mentioned all these instruments that he was able to play on screen. They just depicted him as being the bass player. So, you know, the ongoing joke with a lot of musicians is, of course, the bass player just does the bass notes to do, do, do. And obviously playing bass is a lot more complicated than that, but... You know, your, your average fan may not may not know that. Ask Billy Sheehan; he'll tell you or right, play for you. Right. you be- <laughs> and he was one of the rare exceptions we mentioned before. He did actually play some guitar work in those first two albums. And really, if he did any singing, it was mostly kind of duets or co-singing. There is actually only one song that the Monkees ever recorded where Peter sang the lead vocals for the whole song. And that song is called Your Auntie Griselda, which they did at least once. I know there's at least one episode that they used that song in. But he also co-wrote the song For Pete's Sake, which is known for being the closing theme in the second season when they're showing all the faces. And it's commonly misinterpreted as being called In This Generation because that's the line that keeps being said throughout the song. But it's actually called For Pete's Sake. And he did produce and engineer Daydream Believer. I mean, John Stewart may have written it, but the way that song was executed and recorded did come from Peter, and it is genuinely him playing the piano on it. So those are kind of the notes that I have on Peter Tork, that it was one of those ironies that he may very well have been the most musically inclined of them, but on screen was probably depicted as being the, the, the simplest of them, possible exception of Davey, you know, playing the maracas, but we'll get to Davey in a minute. Uh, anything you wanted to add or do you just want to go into one of the ones that you had? Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Stephen Stills because obviously he's well-known Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Uh, that was what they were going for when they were casting this show. I know John Sebastian, who of course would go on to become a Hall of Famer as well, he was originally considered for one of the four parts and Unfortunately, the loving spoonful got signed around the, around the same time. So that's why John Sebastian. So, I mean, they were going for musicians. They're talking to Stephen Stills. They're talking to John Sebastian. And if you don't know the loving spoonful, you might know a show called Welcome Back, Cotter. That's John Sebastian singing the theme song to that. So 
They had mm-hmm. real musicians yeah. in mind when they when they cast these four guys. I guess that's my point. Mm-hmm. One other name that was considered but not used and went on to have a pretty successful career was Paul Williams. He had a successful songwriting career, wrote uh, just an old-fashioned love song for Three Dog Night. He actually wrote oh, yeah. The Rainbow Connection that Kermit the Frog sings. And, of course, Train, as you and I know, uh, in the all-time great movie Smoking the Bandit, uh, he played Little Enos Burdett. So Little you know, he had an acting career out of it as well. Uh, what was that great rock opera that he did that was a movie in the 70s it was great, too? Phantom of the... Um Oh, the Phantom of something, but it was kind of like a rock and roll take on the Phantom of the Opera. He was the star of that, wrote the music for that as well. So, yeah. I forgot he wrote Rainbow Connection. That's a great song. For what it's worth, bass players have been and will always be the butt of, of, of rock bands jokes. It just, mm-hmm. it's, I've been in several bands, let me tell you. I mean, like, case in point. Did you hear the bass player got a new woman on his arm? Really? Yeah, he got another tattoo. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the kind of joke, you know. <laughs> You know, you know how you get a bass player, bass player to to get in tune. Throw his amplifier in the in the river, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, bass players, and and one of my best friends uh, that I grew up with is a hellaciously good bass player. As a musician, I can tell you, finding a good bass player is probably the hardest role to fill in a band. So. We probably shouldn't pick on bass players as much right. as we do. I well, guess that's my point. Yeah, I'll I'll add this about the the bass player. Yeah, there's a stick figure cartoon or strip that I saw a long time ago in one of the music magazines that I would read from time to time, and and there was this line of unemployed musicians, and they had a really long line for guitar players and a long line for singers, and then a line of about three or four drummers and then there's one bass player saying sorry guys i'm already in like five bands right if you question my important my my statement about the importance of a good bass player you know um i can throw a few names out there and i think you'll get the point oh paul mccartney that was the first one i was gonna say paul mccartney uh, yeah sting (laughs) you know having a good i think i think those three guys alone show you that just because you're a bass player does not mean you're not musically talented you know Mm -hmm. and I mean, Paul wrote, what, 75% of the hits for the Beatles? Right. Getty wrote, what, 90% or co-wrote 90% of Rush's hits? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, staying probably about the same for the police. You know, probably wrote 75% of the police. And then, of course, had a, all, of them, all, of, all, all of them except for Getty had yep. successful solo careers. You know, mm-hmm. so. Brian Wilson yeah, fits in there, too. Brian, Yeah, Brian Wilson. I, I said Billy Sheehan earlier. I mean, he played with David Lee Roth, and he was Mr. Big. He's had a solo career. He's done stuff with Steve Vai. I mean, a good bass player is way more important than we give him credit for. So mm-hmm. I think it's funny, like you said, they took the most talented music, musician of the four and gave him what is traditionally the, the laughing stock, at least to, you know. Right. Uh, another one I can throw in there, speaking of bass players, probably not the best musician in the band, but wrote all their hits, Nikki Six and Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. I mean, the image, that whole hair battle, that was Nikki. You know, so Gene Simmons, I mean, we keep going, you know, there's a yeah, lot Lenny, of, yeah. a lot of bass players out there that they probably shouldn't get teased as much, I guess is my point. I'll leave <laughs> it at that. <laughs> so, so I guess you, I'm going to move on to the, to the first one that I chose and it's probably my favorite monkey. I'm because I'm not as big a monkey fan as you are, but Mickey Dolans, mm-hmm. who was p- portrayed as the drum, the drummer of the band. Mickey was born in, into an entertainment family in the Los Angeles area, grew up there, went to school there. Um, and was actually a child star. He was in a, a 50s television show called Circus Boy, credited as Mickey Braddock. So he's a child actor. This was, like you just stated a little while ago, he, he saw the Monkees more as an acting gig than he did a music gig. But uh, before he was signed to do the television show, he had a small local hit with a band called Mickey and the, um, oh, shoot, I can't remember what they were called now. And I don't have my notes in front of me. But they were your typical you know, early 60s garage band. He was the lead singer and the rhythm guitarist. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mickey did did you know have musical talent, uh, and he is probably at least from the, the dramatic side as opposed to the music side, been the most active of the four post monkeys. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it's fair to say. I mean, Mickey has done. He still acts to this day. He does he does voiceover work. We were commenting off uh, off Mike before we record started recording. That uh, for those of you that are fans of the old Fox animated show, The Tick, 
not the live action, not the reboot, but the original from the 90s, which if you're listening to Geekville, there's a good chance you probably watched that show. Mm-hmm. He was the original voice of Arthur, the the, the sidekick of the tick. Um, and when you go back and listen, you'll go, wow, that is Mickey Dolan. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah, now, now uh, it'll slap you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I, and you can really hear it when he says his war cry, which I think is the best war cry ever for a comic book superhero. Not the face, not the face. <laughs> I just, he, he, see, he played the Peter Tork on, on the tick. The, the, the Arthur is the, is the straight, yeah, straight man. He's just, he's the, he's the setup guy, but, um, right. Uh, Mickey was, um, you know, I I think it's weird. Once again, he wasn't. He was a singer and a songwriter and a guitarist, but they needed a drummer, so he learned how to play drums. And as a musician and a person who's done a little bit of drum and not a lot in my time, what impressed me the most was he learned as he was going. And after six to eight months, he was good enough to play on stage, so he didn't have to have the stuff canned in like you talked about earlier, Seth. But he had some kind of rare degenerative disorder that affects your joints and your your uh, bones when you're a child and, and, and you know, the development of your skeletal system. And I can't not remember the name of the disease, and it's a long you know, medical term anyways. But he has always and even today still has a weak right hip. And even though he is right-handed, he learned to drum with drumsticks right-handed like a vast majority of drummers. But he learned to drum with his feet left-footed. So when you go to D- Mickey's kit, the, the, you know, the toms, the snare, the cymbals, they're all set up for a right-handed drummer. But the pedals on the bass drums and the bass are set up for a left-footed drummer. I can't imagine how hard it would be to learn to play the drums with you know, your non-dominant foot and your dominant hand. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's, I, guess the, I guess the analogy would be like a switch hitter in baseball. Would you think that's a good analogy? Yeah, 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 yeah I think that's fair. I know um, a recent thought on that is uh, Tua Tungavailoa, the you know the quarterback for the University of Alabama. Uh, he's a left-handed quarterback, but he's not left-handed. He's right-handed. He does everything else right. He shoots basketball right-handed. He plays golf right-handed. Bats right-handed. But his dad decided when he was young and he first started playing football, there's not a lot of left-handed quarterbacks. Why don't you learn how to play quarterback left-handed? So he did. Uh, you know, <laughs> worked out okay. I mean, he's won a national title. Played another one, so it, it happens, you know. Um, but I, I think you know Mickey. He he auditioned for um, the role of Arthur Fonzarelli uh, when Happy Days came about, about ten years after the Monkees. And apparently, the only reason he was not cast, he was down to that final cut. They had already cast Ron Howard as Richie Cunningham, and the producers of the show, which of course was Gary Marshall, he didn't want because um, if you if you watched Happy Days. And there's a likelihood that might be on a nostalgia trip somewhere down the road, just for no. you know what it's worth. The argument's there, <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that that they did. Fonzie was not the main character he became. He was kind of a, a secondary character the first couple seasons, and because of that, the main character and was was supposed to be Richie. They didn't want an actor who was much taller than Ron Howard playing Fonz, Arthur Fonzarelli, and Mickey Dolenz is about six two. Well, Ron Howard's only about five nine, so there was a problem. And then, of course, the role went to Henry Winkler. And now that we've seen that, no one can think of anybody but Henry Winkler as the Fonz. But Mickey Dolan's was almost the Fonz. So mm-hmm. I found um, that kind of interesting in my research. Yeah, yeah. When you yeah. say that, it I can almost picture it now. Mickey in the jacket, you know, and the combing his hair, and, and you know, trying to act all fifties cool. cool, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. ride the motorcycle and everything. I mean, it's right. it's weird because as I was a kid, I mean, the Fonz was the epitome of cool to me as, as mm-hmm. a young child. It's hard for me to picture anybody but Henry Winkler in that role. But the more I think about it, the more it, 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 it would have worked, you know. Right. Uh, I mean, it, he's still fairly active to this day as a horror movie fan, even though I've told you before, I have not watched the, the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween in the late 2000 aughts. He had a small cameo role as a gun shop owner in that. So he's still acting even to this day. Um, not as much music, uh, but I- I've always felt of the, of the four Mickey probably had the best sense of humor, or at least that, that, that timing and, yes. and quick wit that we, we, we associate with funny people. I'm saying funny in air quotes there, you know, mm-hmm. like your SNL cast member types. That's, he kind of had that same kind of comedic time, at least in my opinion. He did. I do remember Davy Jones saying about Mickey in one of the documentaries I watched back in the day, he said that Mickey just had the ability to just 
turn it on or off as far as being silly. He said you could just ask Mickey Dolenz, oh, just be funny, and he would just start being funny. You know, you can't really explain it any other way than that. And, and I think when you look at his background, raised in an entertainment family, uh, a child actor, he'd been doing it all his life. He probably didn't know any other way to approach it, you know? So mm-hmm. it, it's a, uh, he's, he's, like I said, I'm not a big fan of the monkeys. He's always been my personal favorite was Mickey Dolan's, yeah. you know? And, and he just, all, when I found out that he actually drums left foot and, 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 you know, hand drums right handed, he gained a measure of respect for me as a musician. And, uh, yeah. I guess I guess that leads us to our next monkey that you're going to take care of. Yes, and just to put it out there, if you're listening to this and want to have examples of each of the monkeys showing their strengths when it came to the group, I am going to link some of the music in the show notes for this episode. And the show notes are going to be at geekvilleradio.com slash monkeys. And obviously with the band, monkeys is spelled with two E's. So... For each of the monkeys, I'm going to link a song that's kind of their stamp, you might say, something that showcases them well. For Peter Tork, I'll link the aforementioned Auntie Griselda. And for Mickey, I will link the song Randy Scouse Git, which is actually not entirely English. Well, it's English in the term <laughs> that it would be an English term for Horny Boy from Liverpool. That's why it wasn't released under that name in England. But especially in the 1960s, that might pass today, but not then. Right. But that song is pretty much entirely Mickey's brainchild as far as how it was executed. He did all the drumming himself and wrote the song and wrote the music as well. So it's just a good example of Mickey Dolan's being very good at at being a musician, you know, on top of just, you know, being, being funny. Right. So moving on, I will go on to give my favorite here. I know, Train, you said your favorite was Mickey. Well, the monkey that I probably liked the most because I could relate to him in a way, and that's Michael Nesmith. And he was also born in 1942, uh, December 1942. So as of this recording, he recently just turned uh, 76 years old. He is actually bona fide certified Southerner. He's from Texas. Yep. And <laughs> the way I mean it when I say I could relate to him is, first off, I love the snowcap look, which is an irony, which I'll get to in a moment. But we his, are from Chicago. His, <laughs> yeah. His gimmick on the show was that he was kind of the quieter, soft-spoken goofball who still wound up being the smartest guy in the room, you know, mm-hmm. when... Mike got the last laugh in a segment. He's usually the one that is not doing most of the talking. You know, so uh, he was also an accomplished songwriter. He had actually already written the song Mary Mary that had been a garage band hit. And he also wrote the song Different Drum, which if you don't recognize the name, I would be surprised if you haven't heard the song because it was a big hit for a band in the 60s called the Stone Ponies. And the reason why I say the Stone Ponies and not the name that is associated with that song is because that was the first band for a then young up-and-coming singer by the name of Linda Ronstadt. So you hear that now, and it gets credited to Linda Ronstadt, even though it was the Stone Ponies uh, at the time. Kind of like how uh, some of the songs like uh, Rod Stewart's uh, Stay With Me, I think that was actually recorded as the faces, but... You know, right. Rod Stork gets the credit now, but like, like Buddy Holly and the Crickets, some yeah. stuff was actually recorded as the Crickets. It just mm-hmm. over time became a Buddy Holly song, right? But to bring up the the snowcap, the screen tests or the auditions, that's really where the snowcap came to be. Because I'll have that also li- linked in the show notes. But Mike Nesmith just walks in wearing the snowcap, and he's just like opening the drawers and looking what's in the drawers on, on the set as he's talking to people. And the producers just liked that look. They liked that gimmick. So throughout the entire run of the show, Mike Nesmith is pretty much wearing that snow cap throughout every scene. In Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be In warm the summer. <laughs> but, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Mike actually grew to truly hate the snow cap. He didn't like it because people were associating it with him. He thought it was funny at the time, and it was just a look... That, that stuck with him. Uh, also, 
with Michael Nesmith, he did actually record songs previously under the stage name Michael Blessing. And he also would produce songs on those early albums, namely uh, Papa Jean's Blues. And he was the guy that kind of spearheaded, and I think Peter Tork did it as well, but he was the one that really kind of started the whole thing of, well, let's play our own instruments. You know, you're, you hire us to be uh, musicians and you're not letting us play. And he's also the one that might not have been the most famous, but he certainly was prolific and really the epitome of the term Renaissance man. Because after the Monkees, he started a video company, essentially. Uh, His mother invented liquid paper, so he kind of inherited that and became the main executive for liquid paper. (laughs) And uh, he also would make videos for the show Pop Hits, which is literally one of the precursors to MTV. So Mike Nesmith actually helped bring about even if it was indirectly MTV. And on top of that, he actually wrote and produced Hollywood movies. He was a producer for the cult favorite Repo Man, that gave us uh, Emilio Estevez. Great movie. And he also wrote and produced the movie Time Rider, and he did the music for that. And I remember still sitting down probably 1983, 1984, you know, this grade school kid that would wear his snowcap like Mike Nesmith, hearing, oh, cool, Mike Nesmith does the music for this movie. And it was a very early 80s synthesizer sound, and the beats were kind of weird to me at the time. Now I get it, because it was the early 80s. It was trying to go for that science fiction feel. And here I was expecting stuff like, I'm going to buy me a dog, which was obviously now nowhere to be found on that. So right. you know, he became that Renaissance man and just kind of really... In my own words here, the way I kind of look at it, he really kind of lived the American dream for a while. He did what he wanted, when he wanted, on his terms. And I think just about anybody can appreciate somebody who is able to achieve that in life. I mean, do you think it's fair to say that? Sure. It's also really easy to do that when you inherit the liquid paper fortune. Yes. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> when you have that kind of money in the bank, you can you got a little more more flexibility of what you can do, you know, yeah. and when you do it. Uh, I'm sorry. I had to, it's, it's, well, I mean, I didn't know that about the liquid paper thing. That's that's kind of cool actually. Yeah. So his mother must have must have my guess is his mother has to be, either must have been a very frustrated secretarial person or was a chemist, one of the two. Mhm. I don't know which, but uh, you would think one of those two jobs would have created liquid paper. But uh. yeah. but it is worth mentioning that he didn't get into that level of the company, essentially, and, oh, uh, no, no. until after his mother passed. He inherited it when, sure. his, when his mother passed. Right, right. And that really uh, sums up, in my opinion, all the, all the stuff that I knew and appreciated about uh, Michael Nesmith. Again, he was my favorite just because he was the one that I could relate to. I could always relate to being slightly outcast, a little bit of a goof, but... Um, and you wore snowcap. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now he, but you are saying he did play guitar before he was essentially told, oh, by the way, you're the, you're the band's guitarist. Right, right. Uh, he was a guitar player, not really a lead guitarist. Mm-hmm. But I think they did assign it to him probably just because of the the placing. And uh, to add one thing from before about Mickey, the way Davy Jones told the story about after they got hired, the producers, I don't know if it was Don Kirshner or whoever, but they were asked, okay, which one of you is going to be the drummer? And in the words of Davy Jones, he, Mike, and Peter all just took a step back at the same time. And they're like, oh, okay, you you're did, drummer. <laughs> Mickey, you just volunteered. <laughs> I mean, I, I, have, I have heard, and I think you said you'd heard the same thing, and I can't remember if it was attributed to Mickey or to Davey. Uh, they, they, one of them had said, had they had their own druthers, the four guys in the group, mm-hmm. the actual lineup would have been Davey on drums, Mickey on lead vocals, Peter on guitar, and Michael on bass. Is that what you heard as well? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, Mickey would have been the front man, and... Right. I do think Mickey was definitely the best singer out of the two. And I'm going to put both of these songs in the show notes at geekbillradio.com slash monkeys, but I'm going to play a snippet on the air here for educational purposes, so to speak. There was the song The Girl I Knew Somewhere, 
which was, I believe, on Headquarters, which was the first album where they basically wrote their sang, own stuff. And yeah, yeah, it was all the bands doing. And so it was the first album to truly be them. And it's actually why I think a lot of music historians credit Headquarters as being one of those historically significant albums that everybody should listen to. Take a listen to. Yeah, but I'm going to first play the demo of A Girl I Knew Somewhere with Mike Nesmith doing the vocals, because it's really not uncommon at all for songwriters to record demos of themselves performing a a song that they can then pitch to producers and such for a uh, a A-lister or another professional singer to do it. But here's what it sounded like with Mike Nesmith singing. You tell me that you've never been this way before. You tell me things I know that I've heard somewhere. You're standing in the places and you're staring down through faces that bring to mind traces of a girl, a girl that I knew Now, here's the same song as it was released with Mickey Dolenz doing the vocals. So I think you can see the difference there. I mean, yeah. at least I, I think so. I think Mickey just flat out just sings the song better. And I think Nesmith yeah. would be the first person, person to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, different timbred voices, a uh, little bit different arrangement, but the riff is still the same. Right. Uh, you know, the bass line's a little different. The drums are a little different, but it's the same song. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that leaves us with one last monkey to, to talk about. And it is, I think, arguably probably the most well-known Um because of what he did before the monkeys and after, uh, he's also the only Brit in the band. The other three monkeys were were American guys, and that, of course, is Davy Jones. Um, he was depicted as the lead singer on the show and of the band. Uh, he was, I think, safe to say, uh, because of the show, what we would term now as a teen idol. Is that am I an error in calling him that? No, not at all. It's a perfectly accurate description. Right. I mean, he was. It was. It was a short. He's a short fellow, and unfortunately, Davey is also the only monkey no longer with us. He passed in 2012. Um, but he was a singer and an actor, but a, a singing actor. He was a Broadway, you know, stage-type actor before the Monkees. Uh, and he probably had had the most mainstream success uh, and uh, notoriety before the Monkees, sh- the TV show, came out. Uh, he had... Um, cre- or, um, created the role of the artful Dodger from Oliver on, on uh, the London stage. And then when they moved it from London to Broadway, he created the role there on Broadway and won a Tony for that. So he was a Tony award-winning actor before he ever was in the monkeys, which obviously those, that accolade was well beyond anything that the other three guys had before that point, you know? Right. I, I think it's safe to say, for anybody who doesn't know what a Tony is, it's essentially the live stage version of an Academy Award. You know, it's it's the Oscars of, of Broadway, exactly. And um, so, I think part of Davy's uh, fame or infamy, whichever you want to call it, also is probably directly tied to the Brady Bunch and Marsha, the oldest daughter, being absolutely in love with Davy Jones to the point where it became a, a, a side plot in the, uh, the, the 1990s movie version of the Brady Bunch, you know, the ones that starred Gary Cole and, and, and Shelley Winters. Um, <laughs> and it makes sense because if you look at the time frame at which the Brady Bunch was supposed to take place, we just said Davy Jones was a teen idol. A girl the age of Marsha Brady would have had posters of Davy Jones on her walls. And mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't exist back then, but had things like Tiger Beat existed back then, 
Davy Jones would have been on the cover every other month. Don't you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was a, he was a good looking man. He was, like I said, he was short, but he had that boyish good looks with blue eyes. I can see why the girls went crazy for him. And and the Teen Idol was a fairly new thing. I mean, Ricky Nelson had kind of been a Teen Idol in the fifties. I think he's probably the the very first prototype, you know. And then there have been a few others like Fabian and Donovan, but you know he he laid the groundwork for what I mean is pretty normal now. You know, the Leif Garrett's, the Sean Cassidy's, the the Corys of the eighties. You know, the, those mm-hmm. those guys, the, the you know the, the the boy bands we talked about earlier that became Teen Idols in the in the nineties and two thousands. Well, you know, Davy Jones was kind of the, the template for that. You know, like I said, him, Donovan, Fabian, and Ricky Nelson. They're kind of the first, you know. Um, but I don't think that Davy was a bad singer. Uh, I think that he probably was the most limited musically in the sense that, like as you joked earlier, he didn't play any instruments except the maracas. You know, right. he was more of a singer. But I can see with his boyish good looks why he was cast by the producers as the front man, can't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And really, his Englishness, helped yes it, it sure did it, it differentiated him from the other three guys without a doubt because he to the day he died he still spoke with a with a with a, with a british accent mm-hmm. you know even though he had li- probably by the time he died he lived in the states longer than he lived in england you know but um mm-hmm. uh, but even after the monkeys had had broken up he yes he did the reunion tours and stuff like that but he went on and had solo did solo work acted did variety shows davy probably remained the most high profile after the show he was the most high profile before the show um i'm i'm not going to sit there and say which of the four were the most talented because that's 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 ridiculous that's a matter of personal taste you know all four Mm -hmm. of them were talented but i think we are in agreement davy was the most well-known before during and after the run of the show and and their recording they had broke up as a band Are, are we in agreement in that yes yes Right, and like I said, sadly he passed away in 2012. So he's the only monkey that's no longer with us. Um, but I, I think um, some of their biggest hits, he was the lead singer on. Like uh, mm-hmm. I believe he was the lead. Daydream Reliever was him, wasn't it? Yes. What was the other big hit? Uh, Daydream Reliever was probably their biggest hit, and he was the lead singer. Wasn't he also stuff like "I Want to Be Free"? Uh, I want to be free. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, Daydream Believer or Last Train to Clarksville are probably their two biggest hits. Mickey mm-hmm. sang one, but Davey sang the other. You know, right. so. I think uh, I think you're right though. The Britishness of him, in his sense of humor, in his accent, probably helped him differentiate him, which made him a better front man. I thought he looked phenomenal even up to the day he died. What did he yeah. die? Did he have cancer? I believe, or was it heart problems? I, I can't think remember. it was heart problems. But yeah, he was one of those guys, as I like to say about you know, some actors and wrestlers, like he aged normally till about forty, and then he somehow managed to stay at forty for the next twenty years. He just stopped yeah yeah and i guess when you have a baby face to begin with that helps i mean <laughs> mm-hmm. when you look like you're 12 when you're 30 you're not you know you're gonna age a little differently but um i think you know if nothing else for me david like i said he was the epitome of what a teen idol was gonna be, gonna become and i'm not so jaded even though i am a cynical person i understand the merit behind the teen idol you know i mean um some of the people that we would say are teen idols doesn't mean they're not talented, you know? I mean, who doesn't like little Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. right? This cute little eight-year-old kid out there with all this stage charisma and present, he was a, he was a teen idol, you know? Mm-hmm. You could probably throw uh, Justin Timberlake in there. Yeah, and I don't think anybody would argue that Justin Timberlake and Michael Jackson were both are both extremely talented individuals, you know, all personal issues aside, right? Michael Jackson was talented. So just because I say someone's a teen idol, don't take that the wrong way. I think Davey was was talented, and um, he had a stage presence. That's why he was probably the right pick for being the lead guy. And as the show would go, not every episode, but the, the, the fact you brought out about him being British, being so – that also became a part of some of the jokes too. You know, like He was different than the other guy because he was British. They never hid that fact on the show. I think if you were to say the monkeys to an average person – that's that Davy's the one they would know. Oh, that's that's a that's the monkeys. You can just about a picture mm-hmm. of Davy Jones, and it might even be just him performing solo. But he's that associated with. Him. Right, right. He he's the one that people might think of first when you're to say name of the members of the monkeys. Right, and, and and I thought you know in those those aforementioned '90s Brady movie, there was that subplot where, like I said, Marsha, they had a subplot with Marsha where she was trying to get Davy Jones in the '90s to come and perform at some school dance. And she actually got it. And I thought it was great that Davey took a stride and actually took the role, did it. And he wore a costume 
and a wig that made him look like he did in the 1960s as opposed to what he looked like in 1990, whatever it was. You know, mm-hmm. um, He didn't get the de-aging process because, like we said, he didn't have to. But, I mean, it was, that was, that was kind of cool. I, I'm also a big fan of self-deprecation, and I don't think any of the monkeys uh, took themselves too terribly seriously, which is probably why they've been able to their entire lives deal with some of the, the backlash we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Um, you know, and I think Davey was probably the one who got the most backlash because he was the, the squeaky clean bubblegum pop teen idol. And I think he just took it in stride, you know, mm-hmm. for God's sakes, once you've won a Tony, th- nothing else really matters. Does it? I mean, you've reached the, the zenith pinnacle of your chosen career. Right. So what else, any, whatever else has the heck with them. I agree. Yeah. And to talk briefly about the TV show, uh, it did run for two seasons from, 1966 to 1968, and it was, of course, a sitcom, you know, laugh track, the whole bit, like you said about Hard Day's Night. It, it really was just kind of more of comedy and music in one. Now, I mean, am I wrong in making the analogy that the Monkees was essentially a 30-minute music video before music videos existed, even though no, that, it had that, a, a yeah. loose plot? Every episode had a loose plot, but really it was a, a string of two or three songs that were essentially music videos Yeah, in, yeah. in one it, episode. Right. It, it was, in a way, the precursor to uh, MTV. Yeah. Yeah. But the ratings did dip in the second season, and there actually was a lot of friction backstage. And just about any history book that you're going to find about the monkeys is going to talk about this to an extent. And that's that the guys themselves, they kind of didn't want to stay in the sitcom genre. They actually floated the idea of changing the format up of the show and making it like a variety show, like an Ed Sullivan or something like that. Because really, in those days, there were a lot of variety shows. Glenn Campbell had one. Johnny Cash had one. Uh, The Osmonds would come later. Yeah, yeah. The Ed Sullivan show was really kind of the precursor to that. And that's really what was the source of a lot of friction. I think it did get canceled. I don't think the the friction caused the, the show to end. But later that year... In 1968, they did their first and really only movie, and that movie was mysteriously simply called Head. And yes, <laughs> if you have that dirty mind, you're probably thinking what I think you're thinking, and you'd be right in that thought because the movie was really an attempt to change the image. Like, I know it was still comedy. It was essentially skits thrown together in many ways but it was co-written by jack nicholson yes that jack nicholson (laughs) and the reason why it was called head and i kind of feel a weird saying this on what i like to think is a family-friendly show they thought that if there was going to be a sequel it would have the tagline from the people who gave you head (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those degenerate Hollywood types. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I've seen that kind of marketing before. When I was in college, there was a band called Free Beer mm-hmm. that we played on bills with. You know how their, their, their shows were when the marquee said, tonight only, free beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a good way to get a college crowd to show up. I'll put it that right. way. <laughs> and now, one other thing I'll mention about Head is there were actually a lot of notable people that had cameos in it. If you look closely, you will see Jack Nicholson as like a cameraman or a best boy or something like that uh, in one of the scenes with Peter Tork. And this is predating Easy Rider. This is pre stuff he did for Hammer with Roger Corman. I mean, not for Hammer, for AIP. So this is like probably one of the first times we've ever seen Nicholson on film, right? Right, right. He was very much the up-and-coming actor at, at that point right, in time. Yeah. He wasn't just Jack by then. That's what we're saying, you know? <laughs> right, right. But Terry Garr was in it. It was her first feature film, and she says even to this day how many people ask her about what was it like to work with the monkeys. Uh, Annette Funicello had a bit part in it. Uh, Sonny Liston, the world-famous boxer, he is filmed having a boxing match with Davy Jones, and like we just said about Davy being so short, that was kind of the comedy of it. And... One guy who maybe some listeners of Examining the Dead will have heard of, it was the final on-screen movie appearance of Tor Johnson, who, of course, is most famous for the Ed Wood movies. 
And he was also a wrestler, if I recall correctly, before he was an actor, yes. right? Yep, he wrestled for NWA Hollywood and LaBelle Brothers. That is correct. Mm-hmm. That's why Ed Wood cast him. Right. <laughs> Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yet another possibility for either lesser-known Geek Hall of Fame and or Nostalgia Trip, but I digress. Right. <laughs> and one other one cameo. cameo. Not really yeah. the biggest star that you think of. I'm pretty certain, Train, you'll recognize this name, and that is Ray uh, Nitschke. I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. He one of the was, greatest linebackers of all time. Yes, yes, linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. To give you an idea of the type of humor that Head had, there is a skit which is supposed to be in the Vietnam War, and all of the band members are soldiers fighting in the Battle of Vietnam. And I think it was it was either Peter or it was Davey, like gets knocked into one of the trenches, and there's Ray Nietzsche complete in a football uniform, not a Packers uniform, but a football uniform, and he gets tackled against the wall of the trench. So it's like somehow in random there's a fully in-gear football player in the middle of the Vietnam War, which, of course, makes no sense, but I think that's the type of humor they were going for. <laughs> a little bit of a slapstick absurdist. You know. Right, right. was the 60s. There were a lot of experimental drugs going on at the time. Yes. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, right. It's like the line uh, Stan Lee had in, I think it was the first Ant-Man. Yeah, says, well, the 60s yeah. were fun. <laughs> yeah, but now I'm paying for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I quote Sinbad, the, the great stand-up comedian. Don't bring back 70s fashion. We went through a lot of bad drugs in the 60s that gave us the fashion of the 70s. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if you don't like disco, you can probably apply that to it as well, but I digress. <laughs> right. And really, the group did break up and kind of get back together in various forms. They did have their final album with all four of them together in 1996 called Just Us. And they did have an album a few years ago called Good Times, but a lot of that was stuff assembled over time and they used Davy in it so they could say they had Davy in it in that album. But really their musical heyday was that mid to late sixties era. So uh Trent, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add about the monkeys as a whole or anything about the legacy. I think the argument is there and there is a Facebook for it, but I think you could make the argument that they could deserve to go into the rock and roll hall of fame because they were legitimately one of the hottest acts around and we're actually out selling the Beatles for a while. And again, right. and again, precursor to what would become MTV, I think that alone gives them merit for an entry. I don't know if we we're on the same page with that. Right. Page with that. right. I, I, I look I, the monkeys, they were not the Beatles. They were not the who they were not the stones, but I don't think any of the four guys in the band would ever claim to be that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I obviously, for our listeners that don't know, I bring up my English background all the time. I have two degrees. My second is in music history, and I can say as, a, as a, what I consider myself a musical historian, there's a lot of merit to to their inclusion in that because at the end of the day, they were one of the most successful acts of the 1960s. You know, and and they, I mean, they sold 75 million records over the course of their career. That's <laughs> wow. impressive. You know, so now granted, we are talking a career that spanned from the mid 60s to, like you said, just a few years ago with the Good Times release. That's a lot of albums, folks. That's a lot of music that got sold. And I refer back to what, you know, I said about Kiss. If the music was that bad, would we still be talking about it? If it was mm-hmm. just fluff, if it was just a television show, would we still be talking about it? Probably not. Like I said, please don't get it confused. I'm not putting them in the same breath with some of their musical contemporaries. They're not Jimi Hendrix. They're not the Doors. They're not the Stones or the Beatles or Zeppelin, but they never claim to be. And um, there is always going to be a, a place in music for pop-oriented acts. We, we mentioned the Jackson 5 earlier. We mentioned you know Justin Timberlake and NSYNC and, and New Kids on the Block and New Edition. They, they were important, too. And we talk about them still, so why are we not? Why, why would we not talk about the monkeys, right? Mm-hmm. And there you have it. As Train said at the beginning of that show, this was my idea, so if you like it, you know, you're welcome. If you didn't like it, sorry. But there's, of course, a lot more to come. We're only one-sixth of the way through National Podcast Post Month. A lot more to be had. We're going to dive back into the Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame tomorrow for Day 6, and we will take a look at... The Phantom, who, again, is arguably one of, if not the very first superhero. And we'll give you the reasons why for that tomorrow. 
This is Geekville Radio. You can find us at geekvilleradio.com, the social media at Geekville Radio. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what we're not doing so well. You can find us on the podcatcher of your choosing, the podcast platform of your choosing. Just do a search for Geekville Radio. You'll find us. Give us a like. Give us a follow. Give us a review. I can be reached at Seth at geekvilleradio.com. So we're going to power down the Geekville Radio studios here. And we'll talk to you folks again tomorrow for day six of National Podcast Post Month. And we're going to talk about all things The Phantom. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren podcast, family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved. Davy Jones was actually watching episodes with his kids, either that or it was concert footage or something like that, where he's doing Daydream Believer, and his kids ask him, Daddy, why are you dancing like Axl Rose? (laughs) (laughs) 